Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Bershon. I teach English literature and film studies at McEwen University. And the following is a lecture that I gave to my students and a course on steampunk, looking at the second wave of steampunk, or as Jess Nevins once put it, when goths discovered brown. So I've seen a few different takes on like you know first wave versus second wave versus potentially third wave steampunk um but i like to keep things simple at least in this regard uh i i think that there was like a first wave of steampunk and i don't even know that you could call it a wave i think i made a joke about this in steampunk faq where i said it was more like a like a trickle it was like an underground river or something but it wasn't really a wave um whereas second the second coming <laughs> of steampunk uh was a wave it was it was certainly more noticeable and a little more um homogenous than than that that first wave was um and really the kickoff for second wave steampunk in my estimation began with um uh, artist kit stolen He's a guy who's done, uh, you know, art department work, production design on TV shows like Westworld. Uh, published some some photos of himself on the internet in uh, what looked like a mix of, of gothic attire, like just straight up goth attire. Uh, would not have been out of out of place at a Vampire the Masquerade meetup. Um, and he has these amazing, basically, I think they're those like cyberpunk, um, braids. He's got these great dreadlocks and some goggles and some, uh, coiled wire, just bare wire. And, uh, it looks like he's up to something. It looks like, you know, it, it, he might be, he might be nefarious. It's difficult to say. Uh, he's got, uh, white powder, uh, like dust all over the, 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 the shoulders. And, you know, it looks like he's been doing stuff that required some heavy lifting, you know, like while he looks like a gentleman, um, he also appears like he might've been doing some mad scientist work. I mean, that's what the goggles always mean. Right. Um, but he, he published these and this is absolutely one of these, you know, when goths discovered Brown, this is where the joke comes from, even though, Stolen's not wearing any brown here, um, but brown became the color for steampunk it, in in, uh, in successive instances. But anyway, what we have here is a moment where steampunk becomes fashion. So up to this point, we've got films, we've got TV shows, we've got books, we've got comics, but you didn't really have steampunk fashion necessarily. I mean, you could say that the, the fashion uh, work of Jean-Paul Gaultier, uh, especially in City of Lost Children, was like proto-steampunk or was steampunk in the film. But as fashion that somebody would just wear out on the street, I don't, I don't think we'd seen much of that prior. Now, of course, there's always going to be somebody emerging from the woodwork to say, I was steampunk before steampunk was a thing. So yes, absolutely. There were people wearing this sort of thing prior to stolen you know, making it public on the web, but we go with what we have evidence for. And, and the photos of Stolen from 2003 are certainly artifacts of that moment. And um, then, 
you know, it, it sort of it blew up from there, and more and more people got interested in it and and, ad, and adopted it. And I'm just going over some some major points in this. I know that there were a lot of other figures involved in the steampunk scene uh, during the second waves, you know, moving up to cresting. Um, but I, I can't mention them all in a single lecture. So if you're watching this and you know you were like, I was there. I was there, Gandalf. Um, th- that's cool. That's great. I, you know, you, you can't know every instance of, of how this builds. Um, but there were these, you know, there are these artifacts that we have of this period. And the ones that remain for us on the web that haven't disappeared with, you know, the loss of so many of the, the forums and blogs that emerged during the second wave, um, a lot of those have disappeared. You, you have to use a Wayback Machine to get to them. But if you, you know, if you Google uh, Kate Lambert, um, you're going to get images from when she was doing Steampunk Couture, which was her website. And she designed clothing that was meant to be steampunk that women could wear in their everyday comings and goings. And really, I mean, if there is an image where we can say when goths discovered Brown, it's Kate Lambert in 2007 at the steampunk couture site. It's amazing Brown dress. Um, but it's, it, it, the clothing that she was making was functional and it was really cool looking. It had a sort of Tim Burton esque feel to some of it. And you could order her designs from that website. And, you know, she gained a certain degree of celebrity as one of the steampunk fashionistas at this point. And then, you know, the, the fashion was one part of the, of, the, of the wave. Another part of the wave was the makers, uh, maker movement. So you've got people who do um, tinkering, making art objects out of industrial um, stuff, working with machines. Um, and uh, famously, Jake Von Slatt um, was interviewed in Wired magazine in 2007. And, you know, you got to remember the, 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 even the ad- adoption of the internet as a space of information was still, you know, it was still an alternative as opposed to now where we get almost all of our information, if not all of our information through the internet. Many of us do anyway. And Jake Von Slatt in Wired had, you know, steampunked, he'd steampunked a a keyboard, he'd steampunked a monitor, he'd steampunked his computer, right? And he had taken um, elements from, we might say, the the industrial age and utilized them to make things beautiful that we would normally just think of as utilitarian, as very practical objects. Um, And he, but I got to tell you, I mean, his work pales by comparison to the man who was the master. I really think, uh, and I actually think that that, uh, Von Slatt would agree with me, um, that Richard Nagy, the late Richard Nagy, aka Datamancer, was an amazing artist with this sort of stuff. The work that he did in steampunking computers, steampunking regular objects that we would use around the house and making them these gorgeous works of art. Uh, he was he was the master. Um, but people, you know, w- would look at this stuff on the web. You could, you know, if you if you were to Google steampunk in 2007, 2008, you would be finding stuff like that. Steampunked keyboards, 
steampunked, I don't want to say toasters, but, you know, taking stuff that we, we had arrived at this ultra, um, it just practical moment, you know, and, and there were, there were people who said that, that Nagy's work and Von Slatt's work was a reaction to the iPod generation, um, that, you know, we had arrived at this moment. In fact, Von Slatt said it, that he thought that steampunk was a reaction to this digital age where, you know, we no longer knew how to fix a car. You didn't know how to, you know, machine parts, etc. Um, which I think is a funny thing to say because I don't know how to do any of those things. <laughs> I have never known how to do any of those things. I could, I could stick my head under the hood of a car and, and it would be about as good as me trying to fix an iPod. Um, but it was, it was the, this moment of everything had become digital and smooth. It was featureless. And now there were these makers who were doing this callback to when, uh, the design of machines was artistry. Um, and I don't know that I can completely agree with that. If, if I agree with it at all, I think it's only true of the do-it-yourself maker side of steampunk. And this is something that's really important to understand about the second wave is that this is when steampunk just splits off in all these different directions. And it, and it's what makes it so difficult to define because, and I've said this a few different times um, in print, in speeches, you know, somebody says, what's steampunk? And I say, which aspect are we talking about here? Are we talking about the fashion? Are we talking about the makers? Are we talking about... And even with the makers, I mean, you go from the, the steampunk uh, keyboards and computers of Nagy and Von Slatt, and then you move over to the work of Brute Force Studios, uh, Thomas Williford and company, and it's this, you know, it's... It's still beautiful and brassy, but now it's a mechanical arm. I mean, that's not a practical thing to wear on the street. That's the kind of thing that you just show up at a at a fan convention with. And that's another aspect of what's going on here is that there wasn't just sort of goth couture being given a, a, a twist. And it wasn't just that we had these makers doing all sorts of cool um, do-it-yourself craft art machining projects but there were also people and this was something that i was told at the, at the first steampunk convention i ever attended um coming out of the uh ren fair scene in in the bay area and they were sick of how the ren fair scene had all this hierarchy to it and when you you enter you enter as a i guess a surf or something like that and then you work your way up to being a lord or a lady. And and that just pissed people off because they're like, I just want to dress up in a costume and, and come hang out. And steampunk afforded people the opportunity to use a lot of the stuff that they had been using at Ren Fairs and, and add stuff to it. Let's throw some cogs on it, right? Like, um, if you take a look at Thomas Williford's steampunk arm, and I'm not flat out saying this is what Williford did, but it, it sure looks like you know, the kind of thing you're like, I was making armor and then I just decided, what the hell, let's make it into a cyborg arm. Um, and and so you had people emerging from all sorts of different creative endeavors, creative pursuits, creative hobbies, lifestyles, and latching on 
to this steampunk thing. And, and Williford was a, a, a regular fixture, at least at the, I don't know if it was true of the East Coast cons, but the West Coast steampunk conventions that I attended, you could count on Brute Force Studios being in the vendor's room. And uh, I actually own a... Uh, 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 one of their one of their artworks, um, and I'm I'm really glad that I have it because I believe Brute Force Studios is no more. I went to their website recently, and it was like an Etsy site, and and so this is what I'm talking about. Is that I, you know there's all these these things that happened back when Second Wave Steampunk was hot, and and they've kind of gone. They, 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 they've evaporated like steam. Um, they've gone away. Uh, and but Williford was was everywhere. He was at all these cons, and he published, I think, two books on how to make the sort of stuff that he made. Um, so I remember picking up steampunk gear, gadgets, and gizmos at a Michael's, uh, Michael's, a craft store, and uh, and and I've never made any of the things in it. <laughs> but I've I've looked at it. I'm not a crafty guy, um, and it was it was it was Williford's like this is how you can do this too, and that is also that was also sort of a divide in the maker scene that you not only had people who were making things that needed to work, and then you had the people who were just making things because they looked cool, and and ne'er the twain shall meet because there was there was a certain divisiveness between those things. Like if you're steampunk art didn't actually work if you couldn't you know if if it wasn't really made out of real wood and you hadn't machined the screws yourself and you know dug out the coal from a you know the mountain behind your house um to run the steam engine that you then then you weren't a real steampunk maker and that's not me talking about von slat or nagy but there were people who got that crummy about everything and then it became this whole thing of like, well, you just glued some gears on it. You used a hot glue gun and you need to do this and you need to do that. And Williford sort of leans in that direction in Steampunk Gears, ga Gear, Gadget and Gizmos. But at the same time, he says, you know what, if you, if you don't have all of these things, like some of the tools that he recommends that you have, I mean, you'd, you'd have to have a lot of money um, and you'd have to know how to use all of those things. And... And so, you know, some of his crafts are things that are, are more accessible, but, but, but what Williford was doing was he was saying, Hey, I've done this thing. Now you can do it too. And that really flew in the face of some people's ideas of what steampunk needed to be in the DIY scene, in the make it yourself thing. So that you should be able to make this thing from the ground up yourself. But what we were seeing a ton of was just copycat work, um, which isn't a bad thing in my estimation. I mean, um, if people are being creative and doing cool, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle projects, uh, that's not a bad thing in and of itself. But there were people who sort of wanted to be exclusionary. There were gatekeepers going like, you're not a true steampunk if you used a hot glue gun or if all you did was mod a Nerf gun. That's legit a thing. So if, you know, you've never heard of that before, um, people were taking... Uh, these Nerf guns that look like great big revolvers, they actually reminded me a lot of the pistol from Hellboy. And they would take them apart and they would spray them down with a primer and then they would paint them to look like they were made out of brass and wood, etc., to give them a steampunk veneer. And uh, that's something I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to mod a Nerf gun because Lord knows I've got children and we've got a ton of Nerf guns and I'd like to mod a Nerf gun. Um, but that wouldn't make me a true steampunk in some people's eyes, at least not a steampunk, true steampunk maker. Uh, so the maker scene was big. And 
it, so we've got the makers and we've got the, the, the fashion people, you know, the steampunk fashion, steampunk making. And that's what drove the popularity, I would say, of second wave steampunk. Because if you'd Googled steampunk at the time, you'd see all these objects, these images, this cool fashion. And it just looked all, it was so fascinating. I remember, I remember deciding that I was going to do steampunk as my subject for my PhD and then going, well, I guess I better find out what it is and Googling it and seeing all these cool objects, seeing Thomas Williford's steam arm and thinking, man, that's badass. Seeing that cool picture of Jake Von Slatt with his top hat on and thinking, I need a top hat. And then as it turned out, I looked terrible on a top hat. And seeing Kate Lambert in her cool steampunk couture and thinking, wow, that's, it just, it, it just seemed all so attractive. And it gave them a certain sense of celebrity as well. Uh, when um, there was, a, there was a, a reality show called Steampunked not so many years ago, well after the second wave was over, I can tell you that, that much, um, both Williford and Lambert were involved, but <laughs> they didn't ask James Blaylock or Gail Carriger to be one of the judges on that show. They were asking makers and uh, fashion designers to be part of it. Um, so that shows, I think that says a lot about the weight that they carried, but this is a lecture for a course on literature, so we can't stay there too long. I mean, this is more me giving context to, um, where steampunk is at as we move into the second wave. <clears throat> so that, the whole maker thing happening in 2007, fashion on the rise from 2003 up to 2007. And then in 2008, Abney Park, this band uh, who had sort of started out as a techno goth thing, um, re released the album Lost Horizons. Now, this wasn't the first time that they uh, described themselves as a steampunk band. They'd been doing this for a couple of years uh, or months, depending on, you know, which version of the tale you hear. Uh, but the, the, the minds behind the band, the mind, we can really say at this point, Robert Brown, um, had imagined that the band's airplane in between gigs ran into an airship in midair or some kind of temporal disturbance, and then they all got steampunked in the process. So they, they crafted steampunk personas as a way of explaining why their music began to change from just sort of a standard techno goth thing to incorporating violin and um, more orchestral sounds and a certain amount of world music. But not only that, dressing the part too. So um, Brown as, and, and, and it, the whole idea of the band as a group of airship pirates, and that was the thing about uh, the album Lost Horizons was that it had this song, it was their hit, really, uh, called Airship Pirate. And um, I remember listening to it on my way down to my first steampunk convention in 2008. And, uh, and I liked their music. Uh, and I, again, this is one of those things where I can say, like, okay, I know there were a bunch of other steampunk bands, but y'all didn't make the same impact that Robert Brown and his wife, Christina Erickson, and the, the revolving door of musicians who have been part of Abney Park um, did over, you know, the years that they have been playing. And, and they, they declared themselves as steampunk music um, and, and then went, you know, and dressed the part and 
uh, had the attire. And what this what was fascinating to me about Brown and uh, you know his bandmates. And this is all the all most of these photos. If you go and take a look at the video, if you're listening to the podcast, uh, just know that the the photos that we're looking at here are all roughly contemporary for around 2008, 2009. This moment when the second wave of steampunk is, you know, at its at its at its at its largest, at its biggest, uh, with its greatest inertia, I would say, momentum. Um, but there. What we're seeing here is a confluence of the fashion designers and the makers because Abney Park is wearing steampunk fashion, but their instruments are also steampunked and they're wearing attire, the kind of thing that you would buy at Brute Force Studios. The look of their guitars, of the various instruments is the same sort of thing that that Jake Von Slatt and Richard Nagy had done with computers, but but it's taking that idea and it's, it's mapping it over to um, to musical instruments. So much so that 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 Christina Erickson's keyboard is an art object unto itself. It's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I recognized the type of keyboard it was. They had it on display at one of the cons, and I went up and I took a look, and I'm like. I played in a band with a guy who used that keyboard and I played in a band with a guy who used that keyboard stand, but his keyboard stand and his keyboard didn't have all this like intricate filigree that was supposed to look like it was made from brass. It didn't have a sort of arc reactor inside of a disc that straight up, straight up looks like it's the disc from the time machine. Um, like, like literally this keyboard will, will have you traveling through time is the idea. Um, when I'm talking about the time machine, talking about George Powell's, uh, film and that iconic disc that sits on the back of the, the time machine, the sled that is the time machine. And Erickson's, um, keyboard design is, is all about that. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just their music. In fact, you know, I, I once, I was talking with, um, the then guitar player, um, Nathaniel Johnston. And I said, you guys are kind of like Lorena McKennett meets Rammstein. And he's like, Oh, I like that. I like that. There was rock and there was like, they used a techno beat. They didn't have a live drummer, at least not at the time. Um, and, and they, uh, and then they combined that with like violin and, and, and Christine Erickson playing all sorts of orchestral sounds from piano to strings. And, um, a mix of female vocals with male vocals and those male vocals are sometimes kind of growly and stuff. And so somebody says, well, what is steampunk music? I don't actually think there is a style of music that you can you know, nail to the floor and say, that's absolutely steampunk, but it's going to incorporate some of the same things that I talked about in earlier lectures that, that there is an element of techno fantasy going on here, right? Like is this keyboard powered by Ethereum? What kind of looks like it is? This is green crackle of 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 energy inside this disc, right in the you know the middle, um, and there's like a timepiece sitting on it. But does it do anything? No, not really. It's sort of a magical thing. Um, even their backstory. I mean, you know, crashing into an airship or having their plane transformed into an airship or something like that. Um, that it's retro futuristic. It's got this, you know, this look from the past, their lyrics were involved in that. So the content, um, and definitely a sort of 
hyper vintage. And I remember um, running into Robert Brown in the halls at one of the conventions. And my wife and I were walking by and I had a cowboy hat on, if I recall correctly. Um, it's like a black cowboy hat with a silver band and uh, some tall boots and black jacket and whatnot. My wife looked more jazz era. And um, <laughs> Robert had just been saying to somebody that, you know, steampunk's kind of getting into a rut. It's all brown, 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 leather, 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 leather. He said, I'd really like to see people doing new things. And he turned and he saw us and he goes, like them. And that, I was, I was, that was kind of a cool moment, right? Robert Brown of Abney Park was like, like them. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> when I, I knew damn well that all we'd done was grab shit out of our closet. Um, but that was, that was also one of the things about steampunk fashion is could you do it yourself? Could you, could you, um, could you thrift it? Uh, and uh, there were, there were, there were panels on that at steampunk conventions. And that's the other thing about second wave steampunk is it was the emergence of steampunk conventions. There were a number of small gatherings before, um, 2008, uh, ushered in the, the big steampunk conventions, conventions that didn't, th th this wasn't like you were at a comic con or a fan con of some other kind. And you happened to show up dressed steampunk or there were some, you know, uh, presentations or workshops or whatever that were about steampunk. This was an event that was entirely devoted to steampunk. And, um, I know that there's some contention around this, but I, I you know, I, I did my digging steam powered was the first that really laid tracks for being a steampunk convention. It was held in Sunnyvale, California on October, started on October 31st. Uh, in the fall of 2008. I remember that very clearly because I remember flying in from Canada and um, driving, like my driver getting me to the hotel, looking out the window and seeing kids dressed for Halloween. So I remember, I remember that very, very clearly. And no one thinking it was particularly weird that I went into the sushi place across the street and I was, you know, dressed up. Um, it didn't seem strange to them because it was Halloween. Uh, but this was the first of many the first of many, at least, at least in North America, there, there is, you know, the possibility that the, the, the growth of asylum in the UK may precede this, but in North America, it was, it was, uh, it was steam powered and, um, the whole weekend steampunk things. And you so see, you'd go to, uh, a, a talk on how to, you know, thrift your steampunk costume, how to get that kind of thing at local thrift stores. I'll say more about that in just a little while. Um, and and I, I, I met a group of people who were improv theater performers with a very particular niche. Um, they did improv performance as characters from Jules Verne's stories. So they, one of them was Captain Nemo. One of them was Robert the Conqueror. And any of the women in this group were like basically bit parts from Vern, because Vern didn't write a lot of women into his books, but they had grown those characters and those personas. Uh, again, a confluence of fashion, confluence of um, the maker scene, uh, but also a lot of these people had said we were, you know, we were people who had been involved in the Ren Faire scene, and we didn't really like the way that it was so political. And what we love about steampunk is that there's this freedom to just do whatever you want. You want to come as a lord and a lady, you show up as a lord and a lady. You want to come as a factory worker, then, you know, get that big ass wrench and do that. Uh, two of the guests that were at steam powered were, um, 
Anne and Jeff Vandermeer. And many people will know Jeff Vandermeer from his books, um, and uh, but maybe not know Anne. Uh, as a team, uh, these two have edited some of the coolest anthologies um just a ton of stuff from steampunk to new weird uh and more recently they've done some what i would say are really definitive anthologies of science fiction fantasy and the weird um which jeff is a huge fan of and uh and and just great great anthologies um but there we were back in 2008 steampunk just released from tachyon books they were um promoting it and uh, it's also uh, another sort of moment in this wave. As this wave is moving forward, I think, you know, Anne and Jeff saw an opportunity with the growth of interest in steampunk in fashion, in the maker scene, uh, Abney Park doing music, other groups doing music, um, like Vernian Process. And uh, now it's time to do an anthology. Because if you, if you regularly edit uh, anthologies and why not do one on steampunk? And, um, I, I still really love this anthology because it is an artifact, again, artifacts, right? It's an artifact of steampunk before goths discovered Brown. It's the steampunk that we had before someone said it had to involve cogs, goggles, etc. It's the steampunk from Michael Moorcock through James Blaylock all the way up through the nineties and into the aughts. Some great uh, short fiction here. But it was a screaming disappointment to many steampunk fans who were looking at the fashion, who were looking at the maker scene, who were looking at going to cons and dressing up in their cool outfits with their goggles and high-flying adventure. And then steampunk is actually... This anthology is some really great science fiction and fantasy. Very thoughtful, uh, excellent sophisticated choices um so they it's not just high flying adventure and rip snort and you know time travel or whatever it might be um but in that year steampunk that anthology was among the top steampunk reads on goodreads and increasingly i use goodreads as a way of of researching where a genre re is really at is really at versus where I might, as an as an academic, say that I think it ought to be, because um, I think that the, the most important works in whatever genre should be whatever I think, right? So, and I'm not a prescriptivist; I'm a descriptivist. I look at what is going on, and I and I'm studying that. So, in 2008, right up until September of 2009, steampunk was doing very well as that anthology. The Tachyon Steampunk Anthology was doing really well, along with William Gibson and Bruce Sterling's The Difference Engine and China Mieville's Perdido Street Station. The Steampunk Anthology was in the top three spots on Goodreads on Steampunk lists. And then three books came out. And this is where the literature catches up with the second wave, in my estimation. This is where I think we see that the the way that steampunk had become popular in all these different scenes in the real world being echoed in the fictional world, being echoed in the diegesis of these novels. Uh, and it started with Sherry Priest's Bone Shaker. And all of this rolled out in a, in a matter of weeks. And I remember being very excited about this because I've been reading steampunk um, 
for my dissertation. Uh, and I was reading things like Thomas Pynchon's Against the Day, and I was reading Perdido Street Station, and I was reading some, um, you know, I'd read The Difference Engine. And then I went, but I'd started my, my, my whole research at Steam Powered. Like, I, when I went to Google, what's going on with, what is this steampunk thing? I found a, an announcement for the event. And I thought, I need, to, I need to go to that. And, you know, contacted the people who were doing the planning for it and said, you know, do you need anybody to give a talk? <laughs> I mean, I knew nothing. I knew absolutely nothing. <laughs> Full disclosure, everybody, I knew jack shit in 2008 when I showed up at the uh, steampunk convention. September was cram month for me. I was reading everything I could and theorizing like mad. And thankfully, they let me talk about Captain Nemo and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Jules Verne, which was something I actually knew something about. But I mean, it was, it was you know, and I've learned since that, that conventions are like this. Like, you're looking for people who can talk and give a presentation and, um, and I met some of, I met some friends that are, you know, still dear to me to this day, people, you know, sitting on, uh, um, panels talking about the 19th century. <laughs> what did I know about the 19th century? Whatever I learned on the audiobook that I was listening to on the way down from, uh, from Edmonton to, uh, to San Francisco. So, uh, but then, you know, the next year, out comes Sherry Priest's Bone Shaker. So what I'm missing there is that going to Steam Powered, wow, what a digression. Going to Steam Powered was this moment of, wait, this is steampunk, right? And, and having people tell me that this is what steampunk was, and there's Abney Park on stage, and that's what steampunk is, and there's these people in steampunk clothes, and that's what steampunk is. And incidentally, my wife just grabbed a whole bunch of stuff that I'd worn when I was in, 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 in bands um, back in the 90s. Uh, and was like, you're going to wear this, and you're going to wear this, and you're going to wear this, and you're going to take this scarf, and you're going to pretend it's a cravat. And off I went. And um, so I got to look steampunk too. Not as beautiful as all the people who live in the Bay Area, but I'm going to tell you why in just a second. But I had this idea of what steampunk was, and then I went back to do my reading, and I was like, right? Uh, the Tachyon Anthology, which I'd picked up that weekend, it didn't cohere. I wasn't seeing the same stuff. Uh, against the Day, yeah, sort of. Perdido Street Station, absolutely not. Too wacky and weird. Uh, Paul DeFilippo's steampunk trilogy? No, my God. Nothing like what I'd seen. And then Bone Shaker came out, and the front cover has these goggles on it. And I was like, I saw those goggles in the vendor room <laughs> at several steampunk events. And Sherry... And I don't know if it was Sherry's decision to, to, to make that cover. I know that a lot of authors do not get any say in their covers. Um, but I do know that the editor who greenlit Bone Shaker um, was into the steampunk scene. Because I remember sitting with them on a panel uh, at an event in 2010. And, uh, you know, and actually saying, you know, thank you so much for for, you know, being that editor who greenlit this book because she clearly understood what was going on in the, in the fashion scene and the maker scene and played to that with the cover for Bone Shaker. But then the narrative itself also really fit in a lot of ways and ways that I didn't even know when I read Bone Shaker for the first time. I didn't know how big steampunk had become in the Seattle area. So to set Bone Shaker in 
Seattle, in a walled Seattle, in a Seattle that is walled because it is filled with a noxious gas that turns people into steampunk zombies. I don't know what makes a zombie steampunk. I just said that that way. Sherry doesn't say that ever in the book. Um, but, you know, this, this, this young kid goes in and his mother goes in after him. And it's kind of like Escape from New York. In that respect, you got to get back out. We got to get out of the walled city, right? And there's airships and there's goggles and there's big coats and guns and zombies. And that was what I'd seen when I was at the con. And now the literature was catching up. Um, Something that I could not have told you at the time. That was the trouble. Being in the middle of it, it was difficult to see it clearly. Just a few weeks later, Gail Carriger, who I met for the first time at, uh, at Steam Powered... She hadn't yet released a book. She was just this woman in a, an amazing corset dress with teaspoons on it. Um, and she sent me this book. She said, hey, would you read this and review it on your website? And I said, sure. And little did I know, little did any of us know, that Carragher was going to be the name to emerge from the second wave writers. The name. I mean... Bar none, but I'm going to do an entire lecture on that, so I'm not going to waste. I'm not going to waste any air on that right now. I'm just going to say, Gail Carriger's Solus comes out, and I mean, right on the cover, a novel of vampires, werewolves, and parasols. This is an alternate version of the UK, of London, of the world, really. I mean, it, it, she gets beyond that, but it starts in London, and there's paranormal creatures, but they're part of society. And vamp, you know, if you're a if you're a vampire, you should ask before you suck someone's blood. That's clear in the first pages of the book. Uh, the heroine gets attacked by a vampire, and she's not so much um, flummoxed by the fact that she's being attacked by a vampire as she is that he didn't ask. He didn't ask to bite me. <laughs> How rude, right? Um, polite society, the comedy of manners, given a steampunk uh, injection, and. terribly funny books um i mean right up at the top here wickedly funny says angie fox you know you can't find a copy of solace in in subsequent prints that doesn't say the new york times bestseller so it came out and again front cover we're seeing a model with a uh, a top hat on that's got goggles on it. Does this ever appear in the book? No, but it doesn't matter because this is, this is, if you'd Googled steampunk, you'd have seen somebody who looked like this. You'd have seen somebody in a dress like this with a top hat like that with goggles on it and maybe a cool parasol to boot. And so what we're seeing here is, is steampunk that's caught up with the wave. Scott Westerfeld's Leviathan front cover of the original book was an embossed um, foil cover with the Habsburg crest done steampunk. And again, it was, it was the right aesthetic. It was the way steampunk was looking when people were Googling it, what makers were churning out from their garages, what fashionistas were producing in their sewing rooms was being mirrored in the marketing strategies for these books. Are they drastically different from what had come before i'd say yes because they're more focused on just sort of straight up adventure entertainment you can do deeper readings of them i have um other people have there's quite a bit there's actually you know several academic articles that have been written about scott westerfeld's leviathan um incidentally every time someone asks me what they ought to you know what what would you suggest for a reading list for my steampunk dissertation because they're 
thesis advisors have no clue. They're like, I'd like to do my dissertation or my master's thesis on steampunk. And you can just imagine some some academic out there going, okay, no idea what it is. And those people not as lucky as me to have had an advisor who was like, not only do I want you, like, not only will I let you do steampunk, but I want you to do steampunk. I remember going to um, academic conferences and people going, how, how did you, how did you get permission to, to do, to do steampunk? I'm like, permission? It was like, it was an arrangement. You know, if I, if I would do steampunk, I got to work with this person again. So it wasn't like, you know, I dragged them kicking and screaming, but that was probably more the case for many of these people who would contact me. I'd get these emails. What would you suggest as a reading list? And I was always like, Sherry Priest, Gail Carriger, Scott Westerfeld, you're done. Because that's what steampunk is. Now, I know that there are going to be people, maybe they, I, I actually don't know why I say this. I don't think anybody's going to watch this whole video who disagrees with me completely. They're going to be like, I remember this guy. I don't, I don't agree with him, so I'm not watching his damn video. Um, but I know that there are people who would be like, no, this is not what steampunk is. Steampunk is this other writing over here. This, this was more serious. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's Mieville, for God's sake. And it's like, no, you're right. China Mievel is absolutely steampunk, but you want to talk about who sits at the top of those Goodreads lists over and over again. Westerfield, Priest, Carragher, and their entire series. It's not like one of the books is up there. All of their books. And I would recommend these. And people, they, people come back and say, well, my thesis advisor doesn't think that they're stylistically sophisticated enough. And I'm like, then you're not studying steampunk. You're studying Thomas Pynchon writing about stuff that we can call steampunk but you're not you're not studying steampunk these three books ousted the top three difference engine got shunted down within a few months by january or february of 2009 bone shaker solace leviathan the top three on goodreads and you have to think about how long the difference engine had been out and that it was sitting up right up at the top. And I mean, I think largely because people are like, it's William Gibson and he wrote no romance. Why do I always do British? I suppose it's because we're talking about steampunk. It was William Gibson and he wrote Neuromancer and wasn't that great. I loved Neuromancer. Let's read another William Gibson book. This one's a bit dry. I don't think I can finish it. Um, but it's sat up at the top. People were, you know, saying this is this is one of the best steampunk books, I guess. Um, Bone Shaker, Solace, Leviathan, they became the top three within a few months. And that's no diss to any of those other writers. It's just, this is what happened. These were the popular reads when it came to steampunk at that point. I remember talking to Gail Carriger about steampunk fashion and, you know, how did it work? Because she was in that whole scene, the goth scene, discovering Brown, as it were. And she said it really depended on where you were from. She said if you were if you were from the Seattle area, then it was it had more of a grunge element to it. It was a bit more dingy. There were more of the, the sort of the engine room side of things, you might say. Whereas down uh, San Francisco way, um, they had had several events going on for years that were more lordly, more aristocratic, and so you know you had more um, more silk and frills and tailcoats top hats. Um, and I can attest to this cause I'm, I'm from Alberta and we didn't have anything like that. You go to our thrift stores and it's like 
I, I guess I could be a um, polyester cowboy. Uh, I don't know what that counts as in steampunk. It's certainly retro, uh, but we didn't have the, the same kind of stuff. In fact, as it turned out, um, we went on a, my wife and I got to go on a um, thrifting junket with uh, Autumn Adam and her partner, uh, Daniel. And um, uh, Autumn is responsible for uh, dark garden corsets custom corsets and um we were in seattle and they took us on a tour of of the places where they would go to get all their cool clothes because they had amazing stuff and we were like oh you got to show us where you got your bowler hats from you know and they told us that the, apparently a lot of the bay area thrift stores had an arrangement with the thrift stores across north america or not north america but across the united states and say like if you got in this old fusty stuff you weren't going to sell it in other locales but the, the these thrift stores these chain thrift stores would know like oh you should send it out to san francisco because they will move that product uh, and that had a lot to do with you know with how the fashion emerged in slightly different ways at different points. But again, due to the prevalence of the internet, due to people just Googling what is steampunk, and, and rather than going like, and now I shall reinvent it for myself, they were like, I'm going to, I'm going to try and do that thing that that person did. I, I could do that. I, I know how to sew. I can make that dress. I can make, uh, I can make a cravat. I can, you know, I, my dad has an old bowler hat, that kind of thing. And so there began to be a sort of uniformity to second wave steampunk insofar, again, as the maker stuff, the uh, the fashion stuff, and even the fiction. Because everybody wanted to be Carragher. I shouldn't say everybody did, but there were a lot of people who wanted to be Carragher. Absolutely wanted to be Carragher. And there were some, there were some copycats, but uh, pretenders to the throne. Um, there were people, you know, there, there was this, like, just cranking out sort of the same stuff. And we see that in Joe Benitez's uh, Lady Mechanica comic, which is gorgeous art. But Benitez used Kate Lambert's, not only her, st <laughs> not only Kate Lambert's um, designs for costumes, but sometimes just straight up like Benitez was drawing from Lambert's photography from images of her in her steampunk couture. So people started to say like steampunk was, was getting into this sort of cult, like this uh, creative ghetto. And it was like a, like a cul-de-sac, creative cul-de-sac, not even a ghetto, just like bam, we're running into a corner. Nobody's doing anything new. Nobody's doing anything interesting. And, and it began to sort of, um, I don't know, coagulate is the word that comes to mind, although that's definitely not the one that I want. But there were people who were breaking out. There were people who were still breaking out. And among them was Art Donovan, is uh, an, uh, an American artist, who was given the go-ahead to do a art exhibit at Oxford. And uh, this here, this image here is his Shiva Mandala, uh, one of my favorite works of steampunk art, and were I a wealthy man, <laughs> it would be hanging in my house. Um, I absolutely love it. Uh, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of art, but it doesn't look like every other steampunk thing. It doesn't look like a steampunk keyboard. It doesn't look like a steampunk computer. It doesn't look like Williford's arm. It looks like its own thing. So, um... Art Donovan was the curator for this this exhibition of steampunk. And I mention this because it ran from 2009 to 2010. 
October 13th, 2009 to February 21st, 2010. And this too is one of those artifact indicators for the popularity of steampunk at this time. That the Museum of the History of Science at the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom would ship over artworks for this from America and, as it turned out, all over the world. But these were divergent. They, they colored outside the lines of the uniformity that had emerged in second wave steampunk in the maker scene and in the fashion scene. Uh, Stéphane Hallius, um, lovely little blobby people with, um, you know, these, these leather clothes and, you know, this guy, it looks like he's got like, looks to me like he's got an elevator, like the buttons that you push on an elevator to go up. Uh, attached to his jacket. You know, he's got the goggles, but eh, not the usual steampunk goggles. Um, this flying guy. I mean, they're just, they're absurd looking characters. They kind of, they, they remind me in so many ways of the the designs of characters in Despicable Me, uh, cartoony. Oh, and by the way, there is a short film based on these characters, uh, based on Hallyu's art. So this is some of the stuff that appeared uh, at the Oxford exhibition. Chris Cooksey's very detailed um, model art is like taking all sorts of bits and pieces from model kits and crafting these really interesting techno fantastic works. And they have that retro feel to them. Uh, an agglomeration of, you know, um, co uh, uh, stagecoach with uh, Zeppelin. Um, all sorts of turrets and towers and stuff sticking out. It's just a, you know, it's like Howl's Moving Castle on steroids. Chris, Chris Cooksey. Um, Canadian artist James Ng um, did Asian steampunk and uh, really turned things on its head because up until this point, it had largely been a very white endeavor, despite, despite its beginnings with Kit Stolen. Um here, you know, it, it, people were like, oh, is that, can it really be steampunk if it's not Victorian? Um, that, that was a legit question, at least legit in some people's minds. It wasn't ever legit in mine. But Ng's work is, is absolutely fabulous. I have seen it uh, up close and in person. Not, I haven't seen James in person, but I've seen the art in person and it is dazzling, absolutely dazzling wonderful wonderful artwork but this this was this these are the fracture points these are the points where it's like no i'm not going to just do what everybody else is doing i'm going to color outside the lines and make something something new and something interesting and then finally and i and i i end here because speaking of people doing what they want and doing something interesting um i can't help but think of margaret uh killjoy also known as magpie killjoy at the time and libby bulloff who were responsible for steampunk magazine if you read anywhere that steampunk was a movement, if you read anywhere that steampunk had a manifesto, if you read anywhere that steampunk was a culture, a countercultural movement, because uh, I've been, you know, I've been reading some stuff that's been published quite recently, actually, um, and still talking about it like it is a movement, it's not. There may still be people out there who have taken up the, you know, taken up the flag and continue to run with it. Um, but it was really Killjoy and Bulloff who I think were at the forefront of this. And, and they certainly spurred others to do it. I'm not saying they were the only people who were interested in the punk 
in steampunk, but they were really interested in it. And um, Margaret Killjoy, uh, I always appreciated, and because you, know, you might think, oh, it's the people with the, they've got an agenda and a manifesto and all this other thing. But I remember submitting work to steampunk magazine which was just a it was a fanzine in many ways but with a with a with a political edge and a political agenda we might say um and margaret killjoy was always open to others views even when she didn't agree with them um i remember saying that i felt that steampunk was an empty aesthetic that it was a it was like a teacup that you could pour anything into you know you want rum in your teacup put rum in your teacup you want tea in your teacup put tea in your teacup and Killjoy didn't like that, but not in an adversarial way. And if I ever, you know, when I when I think back to the days of Steampunk Magazine being a thing and Killjoy and Bulloff being part of the scene, it was that I, I really felt like they brought a vibrancy to it. Um, that I was sad to learn when I was writing Steampunk FAQ um, was no longer, you know, a vibrancy for them. Uh, I reached out to both Killjoy and Bulloff to ask them, you know, about those things. And they say, I'm not, it's not really where I'm at anymore. It's not my thing. I did my thing with the steampunk scene and I'm done with it. Uh, and that kind of made me sad because they, as a creative team had been responsible for crafting this, this sort of culture, this idea of steampunk as a, as a movement, I think more than just about anybody else. I mean, I could be wrong about that, but that's, you know, from a, from a guy sitting in the middle of the Alberta prairies, that's what it looked like from where I was. And in as much as Killjoy and Bulloff and I probably would disagree about a million things when it came to steampunk, they facilitated the conversation. Um, and because Steampunk Magazine was free, uh, it, it really facilitated the conversation. It really put it out there. There were other fanzines, um, but this was the one uh, that, that really had legs. The, the one that people looked at. And, and I, and I know that people who have taught steampunk in the university setting before, uh, used steampunk magazine as a way of going, well, this is what steampunk was about. But I end with this to say, this was just one more facet of what steampunk was about in that second wave. There was the, where's the punk in steampunk? There was the music. There were the makers. There was the fashion. There was the literature. There were comics and there were games. Steampunk had its moment in the sun and it kicked off i would say 2007 2008 that's really where it went boom and it kept going right up until about i'd say 2011 2012 was when it started to come back down and uh and it it's it, you know what do i want to say do i want to say it's had its day i think there are still people who are interested in steampunk but i don't think it's anything like what it was uh in its heyday at this point where you had Killjoys and Bulloffs creating cool manifesto-oriented um, magazines, like very underground, very counterculture, <clears throat> where you had steampunk conventions that Abney Park would play at, or Vernian Process would play at, or Steampunk Giraffe would play at, that you would see the fashion, that somebody could make a living off of designing the fashion or going from con to con with their designs. And that's definitely uh, a thing of the past now. But this is this is when steampunk was big. This is when steampunk was cool. When steam when we went into that second wave, and I genuinely do think that the way that second wave is over, and that we're we've moved into something else. I don't know if it's a wave. I don't know if it's a wave. Maybe it's just the tide coming in now at this point. But uh, when it was when it was in when it's when it was in its heyday, 
it was a it was a hell of a time really really cool and uh i don't have a great conclusion at the end of this um lecture because it's a it's a real nostalgic journey for me to go back to this time when i arbitrarily chose something to study for my dissertation and it kind of exploded around me um but i just felt super i i feel very grateful to have been able to be there when it was doing this and to have at least in various ways have been able to to touch to be close to um all of that so that when i look back on it now i'm not just talking about it based on what little bits and pieces i can glean from the artifacts that remain but that i can look back on it and i can say i was there i remember what it looked like i remember who these people were and what they were doing and what what it felt like to be part of the second wave of steampunk. 